Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the TR90 Body Brain 30 Support Call. This call happens Monday through Friday at this time, which for me is 6.40 Pacific Time, 7.40 Mountain Time, 8.40 Central Time, and 9.30 Eastern Time. Thrilled to have you along with us. Our panel does these calls in support of your TR90 efforts and your TR90 lifestyle changes. And if you ever miss these calls, you can pick them up on an application called SoundCloud by putting in Frank, F-R-A-N-K, Lomas, L-O-M-A-S, and TR90. By Frank Lomas, Solutions, the Digit 4, Anti-Aging, all pushed together as one word. And you can pick these up not only on SoundCloud, but wherever you might be getting your podcast, because they've been showing up on some of the other podcast services as well. If you're listening to this on the podcast and you wish to catch us live, if you dial in to 712-775-8972, and when it perhaps for the conference code put in 910022, we would be thrilled to have you along with us. For those of you that do not know who I am, I am Susan Mann out of Portland, Oregon, welcoming you to the call. And as I said, these calls happen Monday through Friday. And I come to you with an education background, but a huge interest in health, nutrition, and exercise dating back more than four and a half decades. And I had grandparents that were not in the best of health, and so I wanted to make sure I didn't travel down some of the health-challenging paths that they did. And so I tried many things over the years, and the Tier 90 program was the program that seems to work the best for me. And so I have sort of taken it and run with it since it first started. So when you're first starting out with that Tier 90 program, that is your one really good clean meal a day, two shakes a day, three snacks a day, 30 grams of protein at at least three of those meals, Taking a supplement 15 to 20 minutes before a meal is best, but if you're not, do take it with your meals. Still works if you take it with your meals. Um, I can attest to that since many times I had to take those supplements with my meals in order to um, make sure I didn't forget them. <coughs> Seven plus servings of fruits and vegetables every single day. And fruits and vegetables give you three different things, one of which is your macronutrients, which are your carbs, your proteins, your fats, your uh, sugars, and all those important things. Then you've got your micronutrients, which they provide, which is your vitamins and minerals. And the other thing that fruits and vegetables provide, the closer you get them to their source, is fiber. Fiber helps in two ways, one of which is for satiety or that feeling of fullness. And the other thing that fiber does is it's good for good digestive health. Guys need about 45 grams of fiber daily for that purpose. Ladies, we need about 32 grams of fiber for that same reason. And that fiber actually helps clear out your digestive tract and keep things moving through your system at a good pace, assuming you're not getting too much or too little. 30 minutes of moderate to heavy exercise at least five days a week, so that's a minimum of 150 minutes weekly. You can break that up into one 30-minute chunk, two 15-minute chunks, or three 10-minute chunks, depending on your lifestyle. Um, if you're exercising moderately to heavily, 
Well, you need to make sure you're staying well hydrated. And if you think you're hungry, drink a glass of water first because it may be that dehydration is already setting in. So one of the things is that dehydration actually masks itself as hunger. And your baseline for setting up for hydration is one ounce of water for every two pounds you weigh. So if, for instance, you weigh 100 pounds, you should be starting at 50 ounces of water daily. But if you're exercising moderately to heavily, you could lose up to a quart of body moisture in an hour. So you need to be stopping about every 15 minutes or so to drink a glass of water to really keep that hydration level up. The other thing that I like to re recommend is getting seven to nine hours of good quality sleep a night. That sleep does many things. It does what I call system resets while you're sleeping. It stores memories. It repairs muscles and tissues. It clears out toxins. Helps set your brain up for making good decisions for the next couple of days. If you get into a sleep deficit, it is important to make that up because um, you could be operating on a less than a really good functional basis if you're not getting adequate sleep. And if you have questions about things that could help you to sleep, any of the calls that we've done in August and September of 2023 that uh, reference sleep go over a whole bunch of different things that you can do that could help with that. So with that being said, today I'm sharing some information out of a book that's called Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity, and Disease. It was written by Robert H. Lustig, MD, MSL, and this is in support of your Tier 90 efforts, and it's about tweaking your diet based on genetics or biochemistry. Should our genetics determine our diet? Some diets may work better in one person or another based on genetics. Certainly, for the 1% with familial hypercholesterolemia, it's either the low-fat diet with statins or the heart attack city. Latinos are famous for developing diabetes and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease due to a gene alteration expressed in the liver. If you're one of the 19% of Latinos with this gene defect, then any fructose you consume goes straight to the liver fat. Do not pass go, do not collect $200, and in one study, the success of different diets was dependent on three separate genes that control fat metabolism. By far and away, your insulin profile is most, the most important factor in determining what diet approach will work best for you. Here are four different studies that argue for knowing your insulin. One, the low GI or uh, glycemic index diet works best for those subjects whose pancreases release the most insulin. The low-carb diet worked best in the subjects with the most insulin resistance. Yet, if the insulin resistance is caused by a genetic variation, then going low-carb can't fix the problem. In which case, a high-carb, low-fat diet is more effective in improving weight loss. And, of course, our octo 
Riotide studies argue that insulin suppression is an effective method to promote fat loss. So let's look at all of these diets. Some rely on fat for energy, others rely on carbohydrates for energy, and some use both. Yet they all work to control weight and manage metabolic health and have been shown to reduce heart disease. What do they all share? Two things. They are all low in sugar and they are all high in fiber and therefore high in micronutrients. We've arrived, that's the point, that's what matters. You now hold the keys to the kingdom. Naturally occurring fructose comes from sugarcane, fruits, and some vegetables and honey. The first three have way more fiber than fructose, and the last is protected by bees. Nature made sugar hard to get. Man made it easy to get. And that's the nugget of truth that the food industry and the U.S. government won't admit. Because if they did, they'd have to scale back, and they either can't or don't want to. That's why the rates of obesity and chronic metabolic disease have skyrocketed wherever the industry, industrial global diet has been introduced. The number of people who can stick to any diet is exceedingly small. Recidivism is the watchword of dieting. First there's temptation, then there's convenience, then there's lack of access, then there's boredom, and the cherry on the frappe, as they say, is the negative weight plateau for most dieters, which weakens your willpower even further. So diet sweeteners are the panacea or propaganda. This is one of the thorniest issues in nutrition today. On this subject, I am agnostic, and that's Dr. Lustig saying that, because the data on which to make the recommendation on which diet sweetener is best or on whether diet sweeteners are a smart alternative at all remains elusive. Diet sweeteners on the surface would make perfect sense as an alternative to either sucrose or high fructose corn syrup, they substitute sweetness for calories and remove the offending fructose. The United States has been slowly to, but surely turning the diet drinks to diet drinks because of the obesity epidemic. And as of 2010, 42% of Coca-Cola sales in the United States were of the diet variety. <laughs> Not so fast. We have 33% of all sugar consumption is in drinks, and 42% of the drinks are now diet. Someone should be losing weight. Yet there is not one study that shows that substituting diet drinks for sugared ones actually causes weight loss. <laughs> In, that causes weight loss in the obese subjects. There are several studies promoted by the sugar industry that demonstrates that the consumption of diet drinks correlates with the prevalence of metabolic syndrome. 
But remember, correlation is not causation. Do diet sweeteners cause metabolic syndrome? Or do people with metabolic syndrome consume more diet drinks to assuage their guilt from eating Twinkies? So why don't we know if the substitution of diet sweeteners for sugar actually reduces caloric intake, body fat, and metabolic disease? There are five specific issues that underline our ignorance. The first being, there is a difference between the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. In short, pharmacokinetics is what your body does to a drug. Pharmodynamics is what a drug does to your body. They're not the same. Far from it. We have all the information on pharmacokinetics, but not for all of the diet sweeteners to determine safety because the FDA demands it before any sweeteners are approved for the U.S. market. But we have done none of the pharmacodynamics. We don't know what any of these diet sweeteners do to your long-term food intake, weight, body fat, or metabolic status. And the reason we don't have the pharma dynamics is that the FDA doesn't demand such studies. They examine only two criteria for a drug or a sweetener to be approved, safety and efficacy. So the food industry doesn't do the studies because such studies are expensive and may have detrimental effects on the sales. With the NIH, and the NIH won't do them, saying it's the food industry's job, so the studies don't get done. What about the non-absorbed sweeteners? Sugar alcohols such as xylitol and sorbitol aren't absorbed across the intestine, so they're safe, right? Yes, except in high amounts they cause significant gastrointestinal distress bloating, and diarrhea. Second, here's a hypothetical concern. You drink a soda and the tongue tastes either sweet or a diet sweetener, either sugar or a diet sweetener, but it doesn't know which, and sends the sweet signal to the hypothalamus which says, hey, a sugar load is coming. Get ready for, to metabolize it. The hypothalamus then sends a signal along the vagus nerve to the pancreas saying, a sugar load is coming, get ready to release extra insulin. If the sweet signal is from a diet sweetener, the sugar never comes. What happens next? Does the hypothalamus say, oh, well, I'll just chill until the next meal? Or does it say, what the heck? I'm all primed for the extra sugar. I'll go find some. We don't know if the brain compensates for that lack of sugar. Third, the possibility exists that diet sweeteners may change the composition of intestinal bacteria. This may generate inflammation and increase the deposition of visceral fat. And four, we don't know the role that diet sweeteners may play in sugar addiction. Down-regulation of dopamine receptors by sucrose means you have to supply more sugar the next time to get the same effect, creating a positive feedback system and driving further intake. 
The same has been seen with diet sweeteners. So conceivably, diet sweeteners foment the same biochemical dependence which drives further sugar-seeking behavior. So when... So even if you don't get the sugar at this meal, you'll make sure to get it at the next one. And the fifth reason, the issue of diet sweetener safety is extremely complex. The FDA party line says if it's approved, it's safe. But is it? Concerns continue to abound about aspartame despite its availability on the market for the past 30 years. Then there's the other side. The sugar industry has loads of reasons for blurring the landscape. Any diet sweetener that threatens their dominance generates a no-holds-bar takedown. They've attacked every diet sweetener that has appeared on the market since Saccharin. And on Thursday, I'll be jumping into how to navigate a food label. We'll have Frank up tomorrow at the top of the hour. If you scoot over to Facebook, One Team Global Live, one of our leaders will be sharing some information on how to build a new skin business. This is Susan Mann for October 31st, 2023, signing out. And when the little trick-or-treaters come around, you can always hand out erasers and pencils as a non-sugar thing for the kids to get. Hope you have a great day, and I look forward to any questions or comments you have. So there we have it, my friends, why it's important to take a look at what kind of sugar you're getting into your diet and what we can do to help make things really work well for us. And if there's no other questions or comments, you can always send me a text to 503-502-4863 if you don't want to voice your thoughts, questions, or concerns. And just let me know you're part of the TR90 group, and I would be happy to accommodate you if I can. With that, have a great day, and we'll have Frank up to